Get ready to step into scripture with Matt and Tina. Hey everyone, welcome to Step Into Scripture. We are in season four to kick off the year 2024, and we are doing a chronological Bible study, Genesis to Revelation, walking through week by week. The first semester or 13 weeks of this Bible study is titled Shadows because we're seeing how so much of what we read in the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, all these first books of the Bible, is a shadow of things to come in Christ. And so we're gonna see a lot of that today as we start in the book of Exodus. We're in week five now, and if you're following along on a chronological reading plan, then this week you would have read days 29 through 35, which would be Genesis 48 through 50 and Exodus 1 through 18. If you need help with that reading plan and don't already have the book step into scripture, we encourage you to pick that up on Amazon. It does have the whole reading plan laid out for you in the front of that book. But Matt, I'm so glad that you and I get to do this together. This is my husband and he's joining me for this season. Would you tell everyone about yourself? Well, I'm Tina's husband, father of her children. and I'm the most blessed man that you will ever get a chance to meet because God has opened up his kingdom and allowed a person like me to be able to be a teacher, a leader, and a pastor. And I get to serve at Ecclesia Christian Church and I have an amazing family that I get to walk this journey with. Matt, I appreciate how much you always undersell yourself, so we'll just talk about it for a minute. Matt is a visionary leader who planted Ecclesia Christian Church in 2014, nine-year-old church, one of the fastest growing in the country, and um, just incredible. There's a lot of a lot of good that we could say about you, and to have you sit with me and go through the Bible is an honor. And I'll tell you this, Matt is a man of integrity and he is very real when we sit here and have conversations about the bible on this podcast it very much sounds like the conversations we have at home and it's your passion for the word of god that has driven me toward passion for the word of god and so you really are the heart behind this whole thing and i do appreciate that well that 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 is if anything proof that um god can use anybody um one of the things I've learned in my life is anything I tried to attempt on my own was always followed by failures, but anything God was in control of uh, was victories that I could never have on my own. And, you know, if, if I can learn to read the Bible and share the Bible, then that means everybody can. Yes, great and point. that's why I believe this podcast is so important. That's why I love Step Into Scripture, because it, it helps people become literate. And that's what we're doing Yeah, is the difference between a person who says, I don't know, it's above my head. And a person who's willing to take the first step is one is going to stay in darkness and the other is taking their first step into the light of God's word. Yes. And it's possible for all people. It's just that we open our eyes and realize this is written for us to understand God. And he does not want to be unknown. And so all he's asking is us to step into a place of knowing him, and he's given us everything we need right here. So I hope that you are taking those steps. Everyone who's reading the Bible through this year, I hope this podcast is a blessing to you on that journey. If you're reading along, then this week we finished the book of Genesis. We read chapters 48 through 50, and we started the book of Exodus, and we're 18 Mm -hmm. chapters in. Now there is 
so much we could say about shadows of the Messiah in the book of Exodus. It's just rich with that kind of content. And we're going to look at several of those today. Before we jump into it, I want to make one quick note about a question that always arises when people start reading the book of Exodus, maybe for the first time. And it's the question about Pharaoh's hardened heart. Did Pharaoh harden his heart or did God harden his heart? Because there are some verses that feel contradictory. And I wanna just point you back toward a prior episode where if those things have you asking questions, we did unpack that in season two on episode 14. It was titled, What Hardens a Heart? So I'll refer you back to that episode to dig into some characteristics that we can learn from in Pharaoh. But the main point of this semester that we're calling Shadows is to find Jesus in the Old Testament by reading it through a God-centered lens. And Jesus is all over every page because he is the focal point of all of human history. And so as we go through chapters in Exodus, we see the pages saturated with shadows of Jesus. And that's what we're going to walk through tonight. But to get us there, because we're now all the way through Genesis and Job, I don't want us to lose sight of what we're calling the meta narrative, the overarching story that is consistently running through every book of the Bible. So let's recap it real quick before we jump into these Exodus shadows. So Moses, we see in Exodus, was raised up to be Israel's deliverer. And why did Israel need a deliverer? Well, here's what we've seen in the story so far. We saw in Genesis, God called Abram out of Ur and told him, go to a land that I'll show you. And then God made a covenant with Abraham. He changed his name and his covenant was, I'm going to multiply you into a great nation with more descendants than the stars in the sky or the sand on the shore. And I'm going to give you the land of Canaan as an inheritance. That was God's promise to him. And then Abraham had some things to uphold in this covenant too. There was his side, which was to walk faithfully with God and to circumcise his descendants. So Abraham then had a son named Isaac in his old age, and he carried on the covenant. And then Isaac had a son named Jacob, and he carried on the covenant. And then Jacob had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of those sons, whose name was Joseph, was sold into slavery in Egypt in the Genesis narrative, where he rose to the position of second in command. And then he was charged with stewarding the food resources of Egypt in preparation for a famine that God had given him a prophetic dream was coming. So Joseph now in this position of power, able to pass out resources of food in a time when food was scarce, was able to serve and save his entire family, who at this point numbered 70 family members from this one man, Abraham. And so they come down to Egypt so that Joseph could provide for them. And then Exodus opens like this, Exodus 1, 6 through 8. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in number, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. And then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. And that brings us to this plight shadowing the Messiah that we start reading about in Exodus. I'm so glad that you have archived so many podcasts before this to where people can go back because there's, as you're going through, I'm just sitting here going, wow, I'd like to talk about that. I'd like to talk about that. And I'm so glad that you've already covered so much of this for people to be able to go back. And I know 
there are going to be some of you guys. You're going to be like, I'm in this. I'm in this episode now. I don't want to go backwards. I promise you, it is so rich, and it it will give you such a deeper understanding of what we're going into. But if you don't go back today, then walk with us today, and it will intrigue something. There's going to be something spurred on in you that's like, oh, now I want to go back and I want to know a little bit more. And so that's there for you, and I'm so glad that you've provided that. In every statement we're going to make, I want us to, to remember that what we're talking about is foreshadowing what is to come. Yeah. And as God's people were captive in bondage and slavery, God raised up a deliverer to set them free. So we, we really need to maybe take just a second to identify this, this piece of how they became slaves. God had given them his word and a land that he was sending them to. And through hardships, God had provided through Egypt to take care of them through Joseph. Somewhere along the lines, they never left. Yeah. They, they went from God's provisional system to Egypt's welfare system. Right. And they were blessed because of Joseph greatly. And then they didn't leave. And much like us, there are seasons where we walk in this world, but we're not of this world. And we have to remember at all times, we're not called to stay here, but we can quickly engross ourselves into this government system, this yes. world, to a point to where we're so dependent on it that we can become slaves. Um, and so we wind up in Exodus with this narrative of God's people are slaves, they're oppressed, they're hurting. Some don't know it. Some are actually right. helping oppress their own people. And this is something that we see in our world today. But God raises up a deliverer. Again, that narrative that goes throughout the Bible is the people turn from God to the world and God lets them have their choice. And then God sends a deliverer. And this bondage that we're looking at in the Old Testament is a picture of sin and we all need deliverance from sin. Yes. We did not eat the fruit just like the slaves of Moses' day did not bring themselves into Egypt. Right. But because of our circumstance from our ancestors, we still need deliverance. If we start with John chapter 8 with verse 34, Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now this is not just a one-time occurrence. This is all throughout the Bible. But he's, he's showing this picture of slaves to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family because when we sinned, we were separated from God. But a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So we see freedom from bondage in Egypt as a shadow of freedom from bondage to sin. We also see a picture of Jesus in this narrative about the ruler of Egypt, who is Pharaoh, who tries to stop God's plan by issuing a decree that all the baby boys be murdered. The same thing happened in Jesus' day when he was being born. Matthew 2.16 tells us when Herod realized he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And so he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. So again, this story about Moses is actually pointing us to Jesus. You know, I actually covered this around Christmas, the evidence of the massacre of innocents, because people try to say that these incidents didn't happen. And we go back and not only do we find historical record outside of the Bible, especially with Herod, but we also have found bodies of children from this vicinity there in Bethlehem yeah. and the tomb of the innocents. And so the, if we don't trust the Bible, and we don't dig into the historical records and evidences, 
then we can be we can be led astray by a society that wants to erase it. Yeah. That wants to say it's not real. And God's plan has been the same. So when we look at Exodus, God's plans to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt into freedom into a land that he's promised them, to a land flowing with milk and honey. And they went into Egypt looking for protection through a famine, but they wound up staying and found something worse than the famine. Yeah. They found slavery. And I think there are times in our lives to where we have a season to where we go to the world because we, we have to depend on certain pieces for safety, but we give ourselves wholly to it. We never, we never recall that God has given us an eternal life that's promised to us. But even in their staying, God still uses this to point toward Jesus, who also went to Egypt in a time when he needed to be protected because of this decree that King Herod had made to kill all the baby boys. Matthew 2, 14 and 15 says, so he, that's Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where they stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. So Jesus now after that threat has passed, is being called out of Egypt to return to Israel. But again, this is all a recreation of what God had done in the book of Exodus that we see in the Gospels. So God, I love that God uses the, the secular world or Egypt in this scenario both times yeah. to save what he's doing, save his people, save the remnant, save the, the, the future generations that will be blessed through him. And both times he, he uses Egypt not only for their salvation, but also there's a time to come out. Yeah. Because God cannot walk us into the life until we come out of bondage. Now, I think it's important for us to recognize the motive that Pharaoh had as we consider this picture of Egypt. He was threatened by the Israelites because they were multiplying so quickly. They were so numerous. And Herod is threatened by the king of the Jews. Both of them are threatened because they may lose power. Right. And, and we can even look at Saul once the church is established later in the New Testament after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. He felt that same threat as then the church began to grow after it grew to 5,000 people, which is recorded in Acts 4. We read this account in Acts 8, 1 through 3. And Saul approved of their killing him. That was Stephen, the first martyr. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. When the kingdom of Christ is expanding, just like in the Old Testament, when God's people are expanding, that is a threat to a worldly empire or to someone who is not serving the cause of Christ. And it's no wonder we see the same thing today. The largest, yeah. the largest entity of people in the world is the church. The church has, has covered every continent, yeah. right? And so why is the church persecuted above every other religion? Because the same thing happened with the Israelites, the same thing happened with Jesus, and the same thing happened with the early church. And the Bible is true in saying that it will continue to happen until Jesus comes again. But we have to come out from them and be separate. Yes. And so God saved Moses 
by a faith that was the same way he saved Noah and his family from the flood, the same way he saves us today, not just an acknowledgement, because we see the Israelites acknowledge God throughout the, yeah. the Old Testament. We see people today acknowledge Jesus Christ, but faith is not the acknowledgement through word alone. It is Faith is stepping into a dependent lifestyle in trust of who Christ is. Just as Moses had to step into faith in God being able to deliver the people, and just as Noah had to step into faith to build the ark. Well, and even prior to Moses returning to Egypt to lead the people out, God first saved him through the faith of his mother. You know, she did not follow the decree of Pharaoh to kill her child, but Exodus 2, 1 and 2 says, now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Now, this is interesting because that same Christian martyr who we just referred to that Saul approved of his being killed, when he was giving a testimony about Moses just before he was stoned to death, the testimony he gave that actually incited the riot of people who killed him, he said this in Acts 7:20. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. And then later in the New Testament, Hebrews has what we call the roll call of faith. Hebrews chapter 11 and 11:23 says, "By faith." Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. That's the kind of faith we're talking about. One that says, God has a plan and I have a purpose in it. And so even if it means stepping out in defiance against worldly empires, against evil laws, I am going to do that because God's plan is going to be accomplished through me or through my children. So I'd like to take this moment to give a call back to look at the New Testament as Stephen is preaching the Old Testament to reveal Christ. Every sermon of the New Testament used these passages we're yes. reading right now to be able to, pr to prove the fulfillment of Christ as the Messiah. Every New Testament sermon is preaching the Old Testament yes. and then revealing Jesus. And I love that as we look at Jacobet or we look at the, the roll call of faith, Faith, again, is not just people who are saying, we trust in God with word. It was faith and action coming together. And so what I love is, as Moses is going into the household of Egypt, he passes through the water. That's what his name actually means, from the water, yes. right? And after Jesus comes out of Egypt, when he's beginning his ministry, what's he do? Right. He passes through the water. We see his baptism. So let's look at Exodus 2, verse 3. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark. I just love that it's an ark because this gives us that tie to Noah and the ark, that 1 Peter 3.21 tie. As God is saving Moses through water, like he saved Noah through water, yep. and as 1 Peter 3.21 says that he does the same for us today, of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, and put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. Now, we use a different translation here because it's this is a situation where ark is actually the best word. It yeah. actually means ark. And so we look at Genesis 7, and Noah and his sons and his wife and son's wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. I love this as we look at this. How, how did Pharaoh kill the children? What did he do with them? 
Threw them in the Nile. Threw them into the Nile. So the destruction of water. But here we have this saving ark. Yes. This picture. And as we look at this ark, this, it, it, like I said, 1 Peter 3.21 describes our baptism as an ark that saves us also. And so an instrument of death was turned into a passageway of life. Yeah. I love Romans 6. We go through death, burial, and resurrection to new life in Jesus Christ. So we go back to Pharaoh who chooses the Nile as a place of death for Hebrew boys, but God uses it as a means to save life, the life of Moses, yeah. who will be a deliverer of his people. Just like in Noah's day, it was the waters of the flood that were used as an instrument of death to wipe away the wicked. But it was through those waters that God saved not just Noah and his family, but the entire world and gave a new start. And so you look at the Romans, what they meant the cross to be, this place of death, yeah. this place of suffering, punishment, and shame, where they're going to place the Messiah. But God changed that. Yeah. He turns the cross into a picture of hope. He turns this place of shame and death into a picture of life and hope for all they are lost. See, Peter describes this same salvation through water, as we've said again and again, through 1 Peter 3. And if you don't mind, I'll read that. Yeah. Uh, in chapter 3, verse 20, those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, here we're seeing scripture tie together the flood, the exodus. So Moses coming into Egypt, we'll see it again later in coming out of Egypt. And we see it through Christ, this Roman six picture, yeah. right? And if, if, if we were to say today, I've had people ask me why water? Because water can be the most destructive force on the face of the earth or water can be the most life-giving source yeah. on the face of the earth. And so we see it in, used in a picture of judgment and salvation at the same time. Right. Right? So not only is Moses' salvation, how he is spared and how he is saved, a picture of Jesus, but Moses' rejection is a picture of Jesus also. So oh, you, well, you, you got to think, I mean, in this, just a beautiful picture as you're looking at his rejection um, Moses was also rejected like yeah. Christ was. And he goes through the wilderness. What is he looking for when he comes up through the wilderness? What saves his life once he has made it through the wilderness? He comes across a well. He comes across these women who are threatened by these men who are coming and, and trying to violate their well, violate them. And what does he do? He defends the water that will save him. Yeah. And so I, I think just this beautiful picture as we look at Jesus also is, yes, Jesus came to save those who rejected God, just like Moses would return to save those who had rejected God and are now in need. But he comes as our deliverer and he saves us with everything we need. And what I find is beautiful is Moses had to be rejected to be able to save the, those who had rejected and Jesus had to be rejected and despised in order to die and pay the price to save those of us who were rejecting him. Let's just look at that in Exodus chapter 2, where Moses has defended 
a Hebrew that was being abused by an Egyptian, and then he steps in between two Hebrews that are fighting amongst themselves, then their response to him is, who made you a ruler and judge over us, right? So just like Jesus, he is trying to protect his people from the government system that's oppressing them and stop the squabbling that's between them. And what did they do? They, they try to reject him. Yeah. Who, who gives you this authority? Right. Who gives you the authority? And after, Moses, or after Pharaoh ordered the Israelites to make bricks with no straw, later, once Moses returned, the overseers say to Moses, may the Lord look on you and judge you. So the opposition we start seeing in Moses' life as the deliverer is his very own people right. are now rejecting him while he's trying to save them. Right. Which is basically the same thing that John said about Jesus in the Gospels. John 1, 9 through 11, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And so you, you look at this tie. The second time we see people rejecting Moses is most likely some of the leaders that are, are kind of prominent as Hebrew yeah. people. And so who are the ones they're rejecting Jesus when he returns? The same ones. The same enslaved people that are not enslaved, but oppressed people that have found an authority in this position. Yeah. And they don't want us upsetting the balance. The, the fastest way to find um, persecution is to come against those who have found comfort, comfort in their captivity. Yeah. Don't rock the boat. So this same martyr who we talked about, Stephen, in the book of Acts, you know, he pointed this out when he was giving his testimony just before he was stoned. He said in Acts 7.35, this same Moses, they rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. And then listen to how the Hebrew writer pulls all this together for us. In Hebrews 11.24-26, he says, by faith... Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead toward his reward. Now, it's so interesting that this Hebrew writer is saying that Moses, this Moses who lived at least 1,400 years before Jesus is introduced to us in the Gospels, he is regarding persecution for the sake of Christ as more valuable than the riches of Egypt. How could Moses have even considered persecution for the sake of Christ who was so far in his future? Well, it's because Moses is a shadow of Christ because everything we're seeing here is a shadow of what was to come. Yeah, and there is a judgment that comes in this persecution as a result. Because we remember in Ephesians, as Paul writes, that Jesus would also leave heaven and consider himself nothing right. for the cause of saving us. But Jesus looks at Jerusalem and weeps over Jerusalem yeah. because he knows what's coming, just like Moses knows what's coming to Egypt. And he's like, but you won't come to me. And the more they persecuted him, the greater that wrath would be. Just like the more Pharaoh would harden his heart, the greater the plagues would have to be for God to prove his sovereignty. So let's dig into those plagues. But just to recap, 
all of these shadows that we see, and this isn't all of them, but just what we've looked at today, you're seeing God's people enslaved in Egypt and God raising up a deliverer who sets them free. Again, a picture of Jesus who is here to set us free from our bondage and sin. You see the ruler of Egypt, Pharaoh, trying to stop God's people through this massacre of the children. Exact same thing happened when Jesus came. You see God's plan to deliver them out of Egypt where they had gone to escape a famine, just like God calls his son out of Egypt in the gospels where he had gone to seek protection from Herod's order to kill all the children. You have Pharaoh feeling threatened because of how God's people are multiplying and growing, just like the persecutors of the church were threatened because of how God's people were growing so rapidly in the days following Pentecost. You see Moses' salvation through faith and Moses' salvation through water that models our salvation through faith and our salvation through water today. And finally, you see Moses rejecting the glory of Egypt and coming to save these people the same way Jesus leaves the glory and riches of heaven to come and save a people who were enslaved. But these 10 plagues now that we read about being dealt to Pharaoh, these are an incredible shadow of just a greater picture of judgment that God intended to deliver against an evil empire then, and he was going to do it again in Rome. And it really is a picture of the final end of any empire who raises its hand against the Lord. So something that we point out in the Step Into Scripture book on day 32 is that each of these plagues that God dealt to Egypt was a, let me say, let me see how I said that. Was it, it was a judgment. That's the word I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, something we talk about in the Step Into Scripture book on day 32 is how each of these plagues that God dealt to Egypt was a judgment specifically against the deities of the Egyptians. The gods who they worshipped are being dethroned in these plagues. See, if, if the plague that was going to finally set the Israelites free was the death of the firstborn, God could have started with that plague, but he didn't because he is actually showing us a picture of his grace, even for the Egyptians, that he would systematically dethrone each of the gods that they worship. They worship the God of the sun. So God is going to make it dark for three days. He consistently dethrones these gods in an attempt to call the Egyptians to repentance before this final blow is dealt to them, the death of the firstborn, and they're just left in ruins. And God does something similar for his New Testament church in its early days as the church is being persecuted and suffering, first under persecution from the Jews and then under persecution from the Roman Empire. Let's check out Revelation 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land and ugly, festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood, like that of a dead person, and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. 
this, I can't help but see some similarities here on yeah. what's going on. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, you are just in these judgments. Oh, holy one, you who are and who were, for they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. So there, that one's a little different. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over the plagues. But they refused to repent and glorify him. And if you just take a moment right there to recognize, again, why does God issue these series of judgments rather than just wiping the entire nation out all at once because he's giving them opportunity to repent. And it's their refusal to repent, just like it was Pharaoh's refusal to repent that calls the plagues to continue. Looking at the difference between relenting and repenting, we, we tend to relent when we're, we're feeling defeated or yeah. it's hard, but relenting, we just regroup and come back. Repenting, right. we stop, we change. Right. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. Okay, that one, that one I see a little yeah. clearer. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs, okay? Yeah. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Wow. Okay, I'm, I'm definitely seeing some similarities here. I'm seeing some tiebacks. And, and what we don't want you to do is get so overwhelmed with the specifics here, um, trying to, to really figure out what each bowl means and, and focus really on the reading. What's the point of the reading? Well, in focusing on it the way that the original audience would have understood it, because that's important. Yeah. When we're reading the Bible, we need to consider who was receiving this message originally, who was it intended for, what would it have meant to them, and the audience receiving this revelation were the seven churches of Asia Minor. That's who this is being written to. These are churches who are living under Roman oppression and domination. They're being persecuted because of their faith. And so when they start seeing these bowls and they're going, those are repeats yeah. of what God did to Egypt in the days of Moses, what's the message? This is judgment language. Right. right? So I, I think it's also important. This is why we read the whole Bible. Yeah. The early church, most of the New Testament, what before it was written, what they heard scripturally that they devoted themselves yeah. to was the Old Testament. Right. So they weren't hearing the story of Jesus without hearing the story of Moses. Right. And so where for us, it's a little bit like we can make this two different categories and not even see the connection. Right. It's because we've not read it connected. And really, the entire message of Revelation is, to the one who is victorious, I will give the crown of life. That's what Jesus says in different words to all of the seven churches individually. And what a great way to express that here, to show the thing that I did to the empire that wanted to enslave and rule over my people when I wanted to set them free thousands of years ago. 
I'm going to do the same thing to the empire that wants to enslave and rule over my people who I've called to freedom in that day, in the first century. And the same is true for empires today. Empires are going to rise and fall. They're going to commit evils and atrocities, but ultimately their evil that they do against the kingdom of God, against God's people, is going to be judged, but after they've been given opportunity to repent. And, and I think there's an important piece when we look at Exodus 5, verse 2. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. And this, to me, is mind-blowing. Because when we look at the book of Judges later, one of the reasons the Israelites fall away is a generation grows up that does not know right. the Lord and does not know his power. Right. Right. And if we go back to Genesis where we were, it wasn't long ago that the pharaohs and the kings of Egypt knew who God was. Yeah. But over time, when we take the word of God and the knowledge of God out of our society, we don't know who he is and he becomes less important. And we create other deities, other, other things that we give ourselves over to. And so I look at this kind of a smart remark from Pharaoh. Yeah. Who is this God? Right. And God does a good job of answering this question with his power and right. his might. But we miss through, we see his power and his might and him proving himself, but we miss that he's still calling us to repentance. Yes. It's easy for us to relent and then go back to what we were doing when we feel strong enough. Right. So much power in what you read in Revelation, but they refused to repent of what they had done. Well, if they refused, that means there was an option. That means that was God's entire purpose. And so... Well, not just an option, a well-known option to refuse to do it. Right. Yeah. Like, and so when people look at God and see a God of wrath, you have to ignore his characteristic that he doesn't just wipe out nations. He issues these partial judgments, essentially, before a final judgment because he's giving them time. Turn around. Yeah, he's not a bitter God, but he is a jealous God. Right. And jealousy, when he, someone you love is mistreated, remember that's the key. They're mistreating, whether you're looking at the Exodus with Pharaoh or you're looking in Revelation with Rome, it's the mistreating of his people the opportunity to stop, the warnings that are given, and then the aggression comes because I'm jealous over my people. Right. You are destroying my people. You're hurting my people, right? Right. Now, these shadows we've looked at in this episode are just a few. We're really not even scratching the surface. We've not yeah. even talked about Passover, which oh is goodness. one of the most prominent shadows in Exodus, and we'll dig and into communion. that. Right. We'll dig yeah. into that in a later episode. But what we've illuminated here, what are the shadows that we need to be seeing that point us toward Christ as we're reading this Old Testament book? Well, every one of us is a slave to sin, unable to free ourselves, and in need of a deliverer. Jesus saves us when we place our faith in him and when we have our sins washed away in the waters of baptism. That's prefigured in the day of Moses and in the days of Noah. The forces of hell want to thwart God's plan and purpose for our lives. Hell will not succeed, but that is the effort. That was the effort when the babies were thrown into the Nile. That was the effort when the babies were massacred in the days of Jesus' birth. And I love that the Bible, the New Testament kind of gives a face. Like we get stuck with Pharaoh and Herod, but the New Testament kind of pulls that back and points at the dragon, which is Satan. Yes, yes. And so he's always been at work. We can't just villainize the person. Right. We have to look at the puppet master. Which is 
a, a great point to the next shadow we're seeing when we start multiplying, like the Israelites were multiplying or like the early church was multiplying. Or when the current church is growing. As we fulfill Christ's commission, we can expect persecution from Satan. Can somebody testify on that yes. and say amen? Yes. And we can expect persecution from Satan's offspring. Those who reject Christ, they rejected Jesus when he was on earth. They rejected Moses when he came as their deliverer and they reject Christ today and persecute his church. But God is ultimately going to bring into judgment everyone who abuses his children and who tears down his church. He did it in Egypt. He did it in Rome. And honestly, if our nation and her leaders raise their fist against the Lord, God will judge America for that too. His wow. kingdom is the one that is going to be victorious. No geopolitical nation. That's a sobering thought, yeah. right? And so I, I think one of the things that we've done in Christianity today that's dangerous to me is we blame everything on Satan and everything on the demons without realizing just as we can be God's offspring, yeah, they can be Satan's offspring. Remember when Jesus says to the, to the leaders that are coming against him, your father, Right. When they were coming against him about his father, he said, your father is a liar and a murderer right. and has been so since the beginning. Yes. And he speaks lies as his native language. We forget, we can, we can constantly say a demon is behind everything. And all that does is it, it, it pulls the wool over our eyes to see the captives of Satan that he has made his children that right. do his work. And we have to set them free. And it's up to them are they going to relent for a period or will they repent and change? And that's a that's a great light to end this because on. Because there is a judgment coming. Right. And there is hope. We can talk about the judgment, but there has to be hope. Right. And the hope is that God never brings about a full and final judgment, not in the days of Moses, not in the days of Jesus, not in the days of the early church. And still he doesn't do that until he's given every opportunity for repentance. And I want to just share Second Peter 3, 3 through 9 to close this. It says, above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. And here's the picture of God's patience that never judges completely without opportunity for repentance. It says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. I, th I think if we work our way through this just for a second, a couple things that stand out. One is God's, God's plan is patience for repentance for all people. Yeah. Um, and secondly, it's not saying literally a day to the Lord is a thousand years to get us all off on time. But the third piece that's the most important to me, this is just so big being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. We hear judgment and we don't like that word. 
And so when we hear the word judgment, we come to this place of, oh, I'm being judged. Judgment is also where you're vindicated. Judgment is where you're found righteous. Judgment is where you're found worthy. Judgment is the best thing because every person watching this has lived a time where you needed someone to vindicate you and defend you. And that only happens because someone has judged you and deemed that worthy. Right. And God's judgment is not always damnation. That's why it breaks it into two pieces, the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So don't fear the judgment of God. We said this before. I would rather have the most just person judge me who is also so merciful he would give his son for me. Right. I do not want to face judgment by the hands of a world that says they don't judge, but judges everything I do. Right. God is the judge because he's the only one full of justice and full of mercy. And justice, we fear that because of the things we think we've done wrong. But justice is also vindication and reward. Yes. So we want to leave you with just a few questions to consider as you think through these shadows that we find in the book of Exodus. And, and make sure you hear us on this. All of these narrative accounts in Exodus are literal events that actually occurred in world history. We are not saying they are metaphors, but at the same time, they do shadow things that were to come in Christ and that are also true for us. So consider this. What kind of bondage has God delivered you from? Where do you need the Lord's deliverance still in order for you to walk in total freedom? That's what God wants for us, just like the Israelites. He is showing us his desire for his people. Have you placed your faith in Christ and obeyed his word by submitting to him in baptism? That's a huge shadow that we see in the book of Exodus, and we unpack that more in the book Step Into Scripture. As you reflect on your life, can you think of a time that causes you to be grateful for God's patience, that he didn't judge your sin yet, but gave you more opportunity to repent? Wow. Every Sunday, Matt, we see souls come to Christ, be baptized, and and as much as we want Jesus to return, I think you had five people you baptized this past Sunday. What if he had come before those five came to him? One of the things that I find most powerful is God's grace and God's patience. He gives us time to yeah. understand and obey him, right? Right. But he also has an end of that time. And so People ask me all the time, what if a person didn't get a chance? What if they didn't know? What if they didn't get to act on this? I've never seen a scenario where God did not give a person time. And I do not have a God who would hold against somebody what they could not do. Correct. But the judgment comes into, did you know? Did you obey? Did you try? And the judgment is either going to vindicate us or because of the fruit of our actions and choices, it will determine our eternity, good or bad. Right. And one final question, because this is a story of victory. This exodus that we're reading is a story of victory. Have you ever come under spiritual attack because you were multiplying, fulfilling the Great Commission? Because if you have, I hope you find comfort in reading that God is going to vindicate his people. He told the Israelites, just be still and I'll fight for you. And when we're walking in God's plan, it may not happen on our timeline, but God is going to judge attacks against his people. 
and he is going to lead a kingdom that's victorious. If Satan's not attacking, something's not right. Dogs don't bark at tombstones. And if you're living a life to where there is no opposition, then yeah. either A, you know what? The truth is this. If you're living in sin, God's going to oppose you because he wants you to walk in righteousness right. and he wants to work it for your good. If you're living in righteousness, Satan's going to oppose you because he doesn't want to see you do well. And his offspring will oppose you as well. Yes. The difference is if you're walking with God, Satan's opposition and his offspring's opposition is offset by the offspring of Christ who carry the cross with you yes. and walk with you. And we have a clear path because Christ, the Lord and King of Kings, is walking in front of us, leading the way. Amen. Thank you guys for joining us this week. Come back next week and we will keep moving chronologically through the book of Exodus. So we'll see you then.